0: Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I am joined again by my good friend Pete Spiliakos for a discussion of, of all things, a Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi. Pete, I have not watched this movie because I looked at the runtime, I looked at the story and I thought this is not worth two and a half hours after which I'll be angry and disappointed and a lot of other people disagreed but not so many people watched it as previous one so I think there are a lot of other people like me who did not think well enough of this movie. I know the story inside out because I'm a movie critic but I haven't seen the movie so I rely on you for this and you don't regret having seen it. How do you feel about it?
1: Well, I don't regret having seen it, but I also don't regret not having seen it again. I saw Rogue One twice at the theaters. I saw The Force Awakens twice in theater. Once was enough. The movie is sufficiently flawed and sufficiently overlong that I did not need to watch it again. So that pretty much speaks to the quality level of the movie. I'm not sure it's a bad movie. It's got way too much good stuff to be a bad movie. But at the same time, it's got enormous problems of structure that I think keep it from being an altogether good movie. So that's where I would start. I think it's trying, diverse, and woke, and I have no problem. I've heard criticisms of the movie as having contemporary left-wing themes. I'm actually totally comfortable. There are plenty of left-wing thematic movies that I think are immensely enjoyable. Matrix is a left-wing movie in a lot of ways. Blade is a left-wing movie, and I love those. What I think uh, was some of the problems with The Last Jedi is that these things are half-ass and ill-thought-out, and they are shoehorned into the movie ways that don't make it good. If you wanted to make a movie that was a girl-pop movie you could have done it but in this movie they did it badly that's my big problem with it and then my second big problem with it is that the structure of two-thirds of the movie is really lousy there are three main plots in the movie one of them is completely superfluous and the second one is badly organized and one of them works really well so two-thirds of the movie is going back and forth between mediocrity and confusion and just terribleness well one-third of the movie is really pretty good
0: I imagine you mean that the casino sequence is superfluous. That this is a movie where they could have just cut Finn out.
1: They could have cut Finn out. They're also paying for some of their problems with how they set up Finn in the first movie. I think John is a good actor. He's being terribly served with this dialogue. And from the first time you see him, it tells you that every time you see him, that the movie's going to come to a crashing halt. The movie opens with this battle scene in space that's very well structured. I like it. This is originally what I liked about Star Wars when I was a kid these spaceships blowing up and you have poe has come back from his battle scene and and finn has just escaped from his medical bath whatever and there's stuff pouring out of him and it's supposed to be funny and it's supposed to be a calm down from the drama and tragedy of the space battle but it tells you that finn is not actually living in the same dramatic universe as these other characters really and also it's telling you that finn is a comic relief character This showed up in The Force Awakens, but it's even stronger in The Last Jedi. They think they're writing Finn to be funny in the way that Han Solo is funny, but they're really writing him to be funny in the way that C-3PO is funny. Han Solo, he's 80% competent and 20% incompetent, and that's a change of pace. With Finn, he's 80% incompetent, and then 20% of the time he's completely, unexpectedly, and impossibly competent. And that kills the character, especially since he's supposed to be, in theory, the main love interest for Daisy Ridley. Since we're not laughing with him the way we laugh with Han Solo, we're laughing at him, and we're laughing at him almost constantly. But at the same time, this bumbler has to actually succeed, because otherwise the plot isn't really going to work. And it didn't do him any favors that the subplot that he is in, we'll call it the C-plot, actually has no bearing on the story whatsoever. Cut thin, the movie works exactly the same way that it would have before, and also the plot itself has no internal logic They send him on a spy mission to look for a guy. There's only one guy who can do this thing. They don't find this guy, but they happen to randomly run into another guy who can do this thing. And that just seems amateurish. Now, I understand that the purpose of this entire subplot is not for Finn to find the guy, but to introduce a stable boy who was a force user who will make sense later in the series. But if you're going to do that, either tie it to the story in a way that it makes sense to the plot, or have a separate Finn movie if you want to tell a Finn spy story, that's great. And if you want to introduce this expanded universe that will make sense in the later movies, do that. The Finn stories take about 40 minutes of a movie or so. If you wanted to flesh it out to do a one-hour story on Disney's new Netflix-type platform, that would have been great. You could have told a really good story that would have been integral to the Star Wars universe and would not have mangled the movie that you have. But the Finn subplot in this movie is superfluous to the main story. It does not make sense internally itself. And most of the scenes are actually pretty terrible. The casino scene is the most famously terrible, where they're riding the CGI dinosaurs through this 1950s-style casino. That belonged in one of the George Lucas prequels, not in this movie. But what makes it worse than anything else is that every time you cut to the Finn story, you're cutting away from something that you like better. You're building up dramatic tension. There's characters whose relationships are growing. And then, oh god, Finn. The the adventures of Finn. And that other girl who only really exists in order to... I don't know. Her character makes no sense. Another decent actress who is ill-served by her material. There's one point towards the end where Finn's supposed to make a dramatic sacrifice, and she saves him. Even though in the context of the plot, all she really did was basically doom everybody else. It's retrieved by Luke Skywalker, but she has no way of knowing that Luke Skywalker's going to save them. All she did was save him for like five minutes and didn't save everybody else. And he's still going to die. I mean, they're surrounded by Imperials. You didn't actually really save him. Her act make no sense. And it's a decent summary of the entire subplot. It makes no sense, it's completely unnecessary, and it only exists in order to introduce an unnamed stable boy who will be important later in the series. It hurt the entire movie from beginning to end. From when Finn is first introduced to when his little friend knocks his speeder over so that he doesn't blow up the mini Death Star, it's all just bad. It constantly derails the movie. So that's one criticism I have of the movie.
0: Yeah, that's unusual. I thought of Finn as the audience, guide, and substitute in the new Star Wars story. I was looking forward to him getting his own subplot just because you want to see what this character is going to go through, get to know him better, and this was just a carousel computer ride for no reason, yeah. But you did say there was some part of the movie that you thought worked very well.
1: Yeah, I thought the entire uh, Ray slash luke slash ben Solo stuff worked really well. Some of the best Star Wars stuff that we've seen, the director made some interesting and, I think, good choices when it comes to the plot. I thought it was great that Rey turned out not to have a Jedi heritage or whatever. It took certain tropes that were interesting in 1980, but had become burdens without the audience even knowing that they had become burdens I remember talking to my friends. Is she going to be a Kenobi? Is she a Skywalker somehow? Because we couldn't get the timelines to work. And when they just said, Your parents are nobody. They're drunks who sold you. I'm like, They don't have to explain it. Her story could be her story. And her story could be anybody's story. Oh, that's so great. Because we become so used to the Jedi becoming a hereditary aristocracy, even though for some reason they're not allowed to marry. But um, we hadn't even realized that it had become a storytelling burden. That's great that this trope is now not a hard and fast rule, because it wasn't a hard and fast rule before. And the other one was, who's the top bad guy? Yeah, Snoke. right? Yeah, he's, a, he's utterly
0: a... forgettable, isn't he?
1: But at the same time, when he's killed, we don't learn his origin. I thought, I was talking to my friends. Who is he? Is he the Emperor reincarnated? Is he some earlier Sith Lord who survived? Did Emperor Palpatine not kill the earlier Sith Lord? And we find out that none of that matters. And once again, it was good to not have to have everything explained because you know in the first Star Wars the Emperor doesn't even show up he only shows up for a few seconds in the second movie and we don't even find out what his name is in the third movie we don't know what his backstory is we don't know how he seduced Vader and it doesn't really matter in the same way that we don't really know how Snoke seduced Ben Solo and we don't know what his origin is and you know what it's okay it's not his story A lot of Star Wars fans are so into the extended universe and having everything explained that the director said, you know what, you don't need anything explained. It's a big universe, but we can focus the camera on these characters without having everything explained to you. Because in the real world, not everything is explained. As we live through our lives, there's a lot of assumed knowledge. And one of the things that made the first Star Wars movie seem like such a rich world is how much isn't explained. When Luke mentions the Clone Wars, they don't actually stop to give you a historical exposition of the Clone Wars. It's assumed knowledge. it was Clone Wars, now we're moving on. There are historical references that are spoken of in everyday terms. When someone says, this is like the Vietnam War, they don't stop for 10 minutes to explain everything about the Vietnam War. It makes it feel like the real world. And some of those dramatic storytelling choices, I thought, brought Star Wars back to its roots in the context of moving the story forward.
0: I think that makes sense. I think that Star Wars has been plagued by the I am your father look moment and people think that there are answers to problems so that you don't have to deal with your feelings and with the crisis in the story. But the I am your father look moment isn't supposed to explain anything. It's supposed to make things more complicated and force a moral choice and a moral dilemma. That's why the relationship between Luke and Kenobi Yoda on the one hand, and on the other hand, Darth Vader and the Emperor, that was a very serious story. You have Kenobi who seems like a noble man, but then when you see what the master of the Jedi really was, Yoda, you get the sort of revelation you would want. The most powerful Jedi in the universe is this pitiful green thing. But at the same time, you realize how morally compromised the Jedi are. Yoda doesn't care if Luke's friends die, but of course Luke cares. You can't be a hero otherwise, and that's why the Jedi aren't really heroes. Luke at the same time, in trying to save his friends, has to deal with Vader, which apparently nobody otherwise wants to do because it's not their problem, and Vader tells him, I'm your father, and it forces Luke to then think, is there maybe any redemption for Vader, although everybody has given up? It makes it possible for him to think of Vader as a human being. This is the center of the original trilogy and what makes the moral drama for Luke. This is the other reason I did not like the idea of The Last Jedi enough to watch the movie. They screwed over Luke, the one guy who put his friends over anything else, and was not devoted to training or any ideas of the Jedi in the way he was devoted to flesh and blood human beings, which is what made him the hero for that situation, and Star Wars universe doesn't seem to have any room for that anymore.
1: What I would say is that, in especially in this subplot, they actually recreate the Vader and Luke moment where it's come join me and we'll rule the galaxy together between Ray and Ben in a way that is dramatically powerful. That part
0: I agree with. It's the character of Luke that I think was screwed over and I was not going to have any of that.
1: I thought the plot they chose where they're basically reenacting the rebellion ultimately means that Luke has failed. So the question is how has Luke failed? The breaking of the relationship between Ben Solo and Luke Skywalker, I thought that was handled reasonably well. They were both given valid perspectives. Ben Solo is not just an idiot, and Luke Skywalker is not just a victim or a moron. They were both people who gave in to temptation in different ways, and it broke both of them. Having Luke kind of reenact Kenobi's exile is a little bit predictable, I suppose. Having Luke play the role of Yoda and Kenobi to Rey... I thought the scenes worked because Rey and Luke have great chemistry, Rey and Ben Solo have great chemistry, and I also thought it built up to a choice, in some ways it's even better than an empire, because when Vader says Luke, join me and we'll rule the galaxy together as father and son... Vader's perspective is not clear to the audience. He's still just a jerk. But when Ben Sol's rejected both the Sith and the Jedi, and he's just killed his master, and now he's in charge of this vast military machine, the New Order, and he's there with Rey, when he says, join me and we'll bring order to the galaxy, you understand exactly what he's talking about. And you understand why it's the truth to him. And you might actually be a little bit right here. And there's just this look on Daisy Ridley's face where she realizes there's no talking to this guy. Not just because he's crazy, but because he has reasons. And they're not terrible reasons. And there's this ruthless humanitarianism behind it. He's not just a whiny brat in the way that Anakin was. There's really a tragedy of choice at that moment, and it elevates the trilogy to a higher level it's had since maybe the first two Star Wars movies. This three-sided relationship between Luke and Ben and Rey, this is some really good stuff. They're such a power in that conflict, because at that moment, they're both human beings facing terrible political choices, and they both have valid perspectives. I mean, there's a reason why I've been saying Ben Solo, because in the first movie, Kylo Ren, he's a second-rate Darth Vader. Whereas in this movie, Ben Solo really is the bad guy. He is an original Star Wars villain rather than an imitation of an earlier Star Wars villain who's got a distinct perspective from any earlier Star Wars villain that we've seen. He's not an evil bureaucrat and he's not an evil cult leader. He is an aspiring political leader who thinks he's transcended history and is now going to actually produce something like Utopia. It's a choice that I really respect.
0: Yeah, the Kylo Ren-Ben Solo story I think is not just good but promising that in the next movie you'll see the full practical and cinematic consequences of this guy's vision. He's very very serious and his powers are much greater than they have seemed so far. But on the other hand Ray's refusal doesn't empower her in the way in which his act empowers him and she's going to have to deal with her own consequences and see how difficult it is to be good or to refuse to do horrifying things. Maybe plot-wise, the next one will be better. It certainly has this setup. But I wasn't looking forward to the next one. I was thinking about the previous stuff and what it says about what Star Wars has done to Luke. I think that Luke was a unique creation in Star Wars. And also, I'm not sure I can find a blockbuster where you can have a Luke Skywalker. And for a story that started with a morally earnest farmer boy to get to forcing him to choose between his own powers and sacrificing for his friends introduced a level of moral seriousness that doesn't exist anymore because they felt the need to ruin him. I agree that the plot involved inevitably that he failed, but the way he failed seems utterly against the character of Luke and a collapse of writing. So the new stories are supposed to be dark in a new way. It is about killing and seeing the deaths of these old heroes, and to some extent of the hopes they had, and outside of Rey, there's not a lot of sunny stuff happening. She seems to be as pure as Luke ever was, even more earnest maybe. But the universe is far darker, and Kylo Ren is a darker hero and villain than Darth Vader had been. We were spared some of that, precisely because we didn't know too much about Darth Vader.
1: Especially the first movie, where he exists as a science fiction demon, rather than as a person. Yes, movie. exactly.
0: That was the flaw in the original, but then it all centered in the center of the trilogy, and it worked out. Whereas now, people bring much more darkness to the stories themselves, both as the stories have been inherited for a second generation of Star Wars Americans, but also because of the times now. And you do want to see Luke fail and Han Solo die. This can be plausible cinematic choices that answer to something in society that people wouldn't otherwise say. But the failure that was chosen for Luke is a collapse on the side of the writers it doesn't seem to affect the success of the movie or the way the people like their new characters and the future of the franchise as people say but it compromised with something that's going to haunt them because Ray is going to face something like what Luke faced and the question is how could you be morally a good person when power requires that you be a monster now you could do it like Kenobi or Yoda did it which is by not facing up to that choice running away avoiding it. But Rey doesn't have that option because like Luke, she's a protagonist. She is going to have to face the conflict between the moral law and the immoral and even monstrous political requirements of order. I agree that at that level, the distinction between Ben Solo and Rey is very well done and it's quite amazing. Maybe there is something to be said for darkness and the failure of Luke because Rey has to confront something like that. She has to confront the fact that heroes fail, and she has to confront the fact that aspiring heroes become morally corrupted, and nevertheless she has to retain her mysterious purity of faith. But I fear that it's going to ruin their own chances in the next one, where she's going to have to deal with the same question that Luke faced, and apparently it made him into a dark, gritty, miserable human being.
1: Well, also, I think we shouldn't exaggerate how much dramatic unity there is to the Star Wars. Whereas episode 7 is a drama of reenactment, they responded to the criticism by turning episode 8 into a drama of transcendence. That's the theme of the story. I'm not sure that was the way the story was supposed to go. The director, the original writer, they had set up these mysteries of who is Ray's parent, who is Smoke or Snoke or whatever the hell his name is. And then it turns out that these questions didn't matter. Well, I think when episode 7 was being written, those questions mattered. And what happened was you got a different director, you got a lot of criticism, and then they changed the story in response to that. And this is a criticism. We should expect less thematic unity. Sure,
0: I agree with that. And I do think that Ryan Johnson really screwed up a lot of what The Force Awakens was supposed to achieve. And I also think, like you, that he was probably right to do it. He's less slavishly imitative, and that's a very good thing. But what I had in mind was something else. There's a reason so much of Star Wars sucks. It's because people think it's about Jedis, these super neat fighters with their laser swords and they make some moral drama and then they win. But Star Wars had this touch of greatness because the character of Luke could help polarize this contradiction between Yoda and Darth Vader the Emperor, and these old Jedis, and to suggest a generational, familial, a political, and a historical motion in the direction of a freedom that could be trusted morally. That freedom would not mean somebody tyrannizing everybody else, that ambition would not have to lead to what it had led to. And leaving aside thematic unity, you do have to think about what are the Jedi really? What is the political conflict Really? And I think you're inevitably going to run up against the problem Luke faced. Failing to have dealt with it properly when they reintroduced Luke is going to cause failure when Rey is going to have to face it herself. These are things that go beyond how people like their characters or what would be a really dramatic choice that could interest people. But they go to the fundamental questions of soul and politics that hide behind the drama and that are really the only reasons these characters have staying power.
1: Well, these were hinted at in the prequels in almost invariably Episode 2 is singled out as being the worst movie. But I do think that has the best scenes in the trilogy. Because that's the one time where Anakin's conflict makes sense on a dramatic level. It gets to the point where bringing balance to the Force, a terrible phrase, actually means transcending the contradictions of the Jedi understanding of love. Anakin, the slave boy who's taken away from his mother and his love is supposed to be general serve the galaxy and life in general, which means you can't actually care about people in particular. And in the course of not caring about people in particular, his mother is literally raped to death. And Anakin's response is to say, I'm never going to do this again. That's the one point where Anakin's feelings are actually proportionate to the dramatic stakes involved. Where Anakin says to Padme, I'm not going to let somebody else I love die. But at the same time, his criticisms of the Jedi are legitimate. These rat bastards took him away from his mom, who he could have saved. And now they're telling him he's supposed to let the woman he loves die too. Screw them. Screw all of them. His criticism is legitimate on the philosophical level. The Jedi are wrong. His feelings are correct. But at the same time, his rejection of them is so extreme that he's embracing a different kind of evil. He kills the innocent along with the guilty among the same yeah. people.
0: The killing of the children has this dark genius. The Jedi are dedicated to celibacy, and Anakin Skywalker repays them by killing all the children apprentices, and of course symbolically killing himself, rejecting his own education as a Jedi. For all the terrible stuff in the sequel trilogy, the story, the tragedy of Anakin Skywalker is genuine, and it's really more interesting than anything else they have thought up. The story of Luke Skywalker isn't that interesting, it just has a focal moral choice that is incredible and is very well done and moving. But Anakin Skywalker is an incredibly interesting character. I don't think Ben Solo is as interesting, but then again, it's hard to come up with a myth and then make it work out in its proper tragic paces. These much better made movies that are coming out now, I don't think they're going to turn Ben Solo into somebody as morally interesting and as politically interesting and cinematically as a tragic character, as interesting as Anakin was.
1: Well, I think I was watching a little bit of episode three, and there's a scene where Anakin is talking to Padme, and this is their last confrontation, where she's coming out of the ship, and she's learned about all the bad things she's done, and I'm like, you know what? This isn't quite as bad as to remember. And then she says, they say you killed younglings, and I'm like, okay, yeah, there you go. That little bit of dialogue drains the situation of all drama. It's just one of those things where there's gems that are scattered along these rivers of crap. And there are certain structural problems in The Last Jedi that recreate the structural problems in Episode One. So if we just move to the B-plot, which is the Poe Dameron plot. And one of the huge structural problems in Episode One is the existence of Qui-Gon Jinn. Whereas Liam Neeson's a terrific actor, one of the few actors in the prequel trilogy, that can deliver Lucas's terrible dialogue with conviction. Things that Qui-Gon Jinn is saying, they're completely moronic. But when he says it, you're like, yeah, good point. He actually elevates the movie when he's in it, but his character is a roadblock to where the story needs to go. Phantom Menace, it's about forming two relationships. The relationship between Anakin and Padme, and the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan. But in this movie, Anakin never forms that relationship with Obi-Wan, because he's constantly interacting with Qui-Gon. And Obi-Wan plays Boo-Boo to Qui-Gon's Yogi the Bear. Obi-Wan spends the entire movie going, gee, Qui-Gon, Master Yoda won't be happy. He's just a wet blanket, and he's never really interacting with Anakin except to say, can't we ditch this brat? And the tragedy of the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan is dependent on us caring about them. But their relationship never forms in the first movie, and in the second movie, their relationship already exists. There's actually a scene in the elevator when they're talking about I saved you, you saved me, blah 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 But it's dependent on telling us rather than showing us. So their relationship in the second movie seems really phony. You can't tell if they're teacher student or older brother and kid brother, and it never really works. And that's because the character of Qui Gon Jinn was constantly getting in the way, and that damages the entire trilogy. You can actually kind of see the outline of the regretful Obi Wan Kenobi in Episode Four, where Obi Wan Kenobi, against the advice of his elders, Young Jedi became a Jedi Master before his time, recruited the slave boy that Yoda told him not to recruit, and he screwed up his training, and now this guy became Darth Vader. And you can see where there's this regret and failure on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Whereas, if you think about it, Qui-Gon Jinn screwed up the galaxy for everybody. And he didn't even get to pay the price.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. But it's important to have a four-body problem. You're right that you need to end up with Padme, Anakin, and Obi-Wan. That's necessary both because we learned about them in the previous trilogy, but also because these bring the crisis of the Jedi to a head. Because you have erotic love and brotherhood both there. So these are all great ideas that they started with. But Qui-Gon was necessary to this. Qui-Gon is the connection between the Jedi and Obi-Wan and Anakin, who bring the Jedi to an end. And the way it was supposed to work is it's a four-body problem. When one of them talks to another one, the other two have to work together. And so Obi-Wan was supposed to get his time with Qui-Gon and then his time with Anakin, and Padme was supposed to get her time with Qui-Gon and then her time with Anakin as well. And you would have seen both facets of both Anakin and Obi-Wan. You just structure the scenes by matching pairs that change, and of course the whole point of the first movie was that it was supposed to break the pattern of Star Wars movies. Qui-Gon was supposed to die, Darth Maul was supposed to win that, and the other guys had to run away. Because none of them are ready, and if they are not in a situation where they are defeated by a Sith Lord they didn't see coming, what is really the urgency of promoting Obi-Wan? What is really the urgency of trusting the whole Jedi Order in a cowardly move? will be saved by a slave child. But these people don't know how to write character problems that are immediately obvious. Nobody's in any doubt as to why Anakin has to fall in love and on the other hand has to love his friend. And you're right that all of that should have been shown and that they owed their lives to each other in an escape. I agree that Qui-Gon is a problem, but I think that that's the connection between the old Jedi Order and the new crisis that's coming with Obi-Wan and Anakin. The Clone Wars were supposed to work in a similar way. Because of their strange powers together, they were supposed to end up jeopardizing the entire Jedi Order because they believe so much in fighting off this new menace that they don't understand they're throwing the whole galaxy out of whack. It has a specific way of functioning with the Jedi Order, and it doesn't allow for superheroes to show up.
1: Well, the problem of Episode one is that the presence of Qui-Gon, and the way the story is written, he substitutes for Obi-Wan in his relationship with Anakin. Now, if you had to have Qui-Gon in there, Qui-Gon has to be the guy who's skeptical of Anakin, and Obi-Wan has to be the guy pushing away. I can't remember any conversations between Obi-Wan and Anakin, except for after Qui-Gon Jinn is dead, and Obi-Wan's like, oh, damn, I guess I gotta do this. Whereas, actually, the hint of why Obi-Wan cares so much is there in his name. He's got a letter number designation. He's KN0B1. That is why this Jedi should be so interested in a slave and why he should be willing to take on his mentors in order to train the slave because he was one himself. But they let Qui-Gon get in the way because, let's face it, Liam Neeson's a more naturally paternal character. So they would focus the story on him, even though in terms of the dramatic dynamics, it screwed up the next two movies because they're dependent on a relationship between two people that never had a relationship in the first movie. Lucas had an sprawling, ambitious story, much more ambitious in the first trilogy, and then he published a first draft. There's actually a great little story in there that needed several more years worth of work and collaboration with other people to say, George, that needs to come out. And if they had put the work in, that would have been three great movies, instead of three bad movies with some good moments. It's kind of weird that I think there's a similar problem in the B-plot of The Last Jedi. The B-plot is a Leia story, and it's a Poe Dameron story, but they introduce Laura Dern as Vice-Admirable Purple-Hair. And I understand that they're trying to tell a gender dynamic story in there, but she has the same problem that Qui-Gon Chin has. There's a dynamic that would work, but they don't want to do that. They add another character in there, and that screws up the natural conflict, and it screws up the audience's emotions. Because everyone focuses on, I'm going to call her purple hair because that's all we really know about her. She's just generically good. Supposed to be a good military leader, I guess. But once again, it's one of those things where for almost the entire part of the story, it's told rather than shown. The B-plot is about Poe Dameron growing from a fighter to the next generation political military leader within the rebellion, but he doesn't accept it. He wants to be a soldier on the line, and he's got to grow. Now, Leia's the natural antagonist, so why isn't he in this conflict taking place with Leia? Why are they putting Leia to sleep? Because if his conflict was with Leia, we can see the validity of both perspectives, because we've seen Poe in for a movie, and we've seen Leia for a long time, so when they're arguing, we can see and sympathize with both of them. By substituting Vice Admiral Purple here, her perspective at that point is presumptively invalid because we know nothing about her. We have no reason to trust that she'll ultimately be right. She just comes across like a pedantic jerk. She isn't a political military leader that you respect. She is a martinet. And at that point, all our sympathy is with Poe. We can't actually see what's wrong with what he's doing because the structure of the story won't let us see a valid alternative perspective. Now, I suppose you could have had an argument with Admiral Akbar, but the problem with Admiral Akbar is he's a giant goldfish, and it would look stupid. So I can understand killing him. But why put Leia in a coma? Because at that point, instead of having a conflict between tactics and strategy, you have a conflict between tactics and obtuse entitled military authority in the form of Admiral Purple Hair. If they wanted to tell a feminist story, now there's no reason why you should add Vice Admiral Purple Hair. Leo's right there, but. Since we're already inclined to trust Leia, is it possibly that they don't think it's, quote, real feminism? If it's Leia, it's personal. If it's Vice Admiral Purple here, it's not about how you should listen to Leia, it's about how you should just blindly listen to every assistant professor of women's studies and just completely turn your brain off. Blind allegiance to institutional authority, is that what they're shooting for? Because by the end of the story, Poe has learned to become a political military leader. He's the guy who chooses retreat rather than futile battle so they got there but but at the same time there's also no reason why purple hair isn't sharing her strategy with poe who at this point is the number two military leader in the resistance there's nobody else so why isn't she sharing the strategy there's not really a lesson there she has no reason not to trust poe and her plan is sound so why is she keeping everything quiet Instead of being the leader he needs to grow into, she is simply an obstacle for the sake of being an obstacle. And the audience is supposed to sympathize her because she represents a certain kind of authority. I don't understand the point of her character. You could have had a conflict between two valid perspectives. And instead you had a conflict between one character who's immature and another character who is incomprehensible, incredibly arrogant, and a martinet. And whose plan is incomprehensible and seems to be courting a mutual mutiny just for the sake of courting a mutiny that makes no sense
0: yeah that's also terrible but at least not all of these problems are going to have consequences so i'm not as glum about the next one as i have been about this one for all the failures star wars is hiring writer directors who have ideas that they're willing to pursue in fairly ambitious and unusual ways On the other hand, for all the talent they're recruiting, they do still have these failures. You wonder, when the hell is Finn going to be a real character with dramatic stakes? This is strangely disappointing that most of the characters introduced in The Force Awakens don't get anything to justify your curiosity about them and your investment in them.
1: They keep having him play the clown, which a little bit of it is fine, but I think they made a dramatic choice in the first movie that's handicapped them, where Finn was a child soldier who never did anything wrong. So at his first battle, he chose not to kill anybody. Yeah, if you're going to make Finn your Han Solo character, Han Solo had a certain darkness to him. Han Solo had done bad things. Han Solo wasn't just a character who had bad things done to him. He was scuffled and he was morally compromised. And we see that in the first scene where he surreptitiously kills Greedo. By making Finn a child soldier who'd never done anything bad, just a janitor who for some reason had been recruited to participate in a high-value commando raid, like happens all the time in the military, you
0: know... (laughs) They put so much on his innocence that he ends up looking incompetent. And this is a typical movie problem. People don't understand that this character has to be morally serious and that also requires certain competencies of his own. What is he there for? What is he good at? What is his stake in this? Apparently these questions baffle writers who are otherwise in charge of incredibly sophisticated and very successful projects. Maybe the letdown now is going to lead to satisfaction later, but still not good at writing characters.
1: Well, that's one thing they got right in Rogue One, where the characters are morally compromised. When we first meet Finn, Finn is just a victim who refuses to become a victimizer. Whereas in Rogue One, all the characters have... They don't just have bad things that happen to them, they have regrets. They made bad choices. They always show Cassian sweaty and greasy and dirty, because in Cassian's mind, that's what he is all the time. He is an unrepentant assassin, but at the same time, it constantly weighs on him. Whereas with Finn, you don't want to do too much of that because, as you said, he's an audience substitute, but you need a little bit of that. The first thing you do as a child soldier is really bad, so there's no turning back. And by turning him into a child soldier who never child soldiered, it creates an asymmetry between his alleged experiences and what we actually see as a character. There's no
0: past to him, there's no depth to him, you don't have any sense of where his moral tendencies are and what the burdens he's bearing are.
1: The first test they ever give you is in a Super Commando raid? I mean, come on! It it just doesn't make any sense, but at the same time, Finn's really important. I mean, Finn is projected to be Rey's eventual husband. I mean, that's where they're going with this. But it makes him a complete lightweight. Instead of making him hand Solo, it makes him C-3PO. The reason C-3PO can be so funny is because somebody else will always be there to save the day, and he's there to relieve some of the tension and make it bearable by giving us a laugh, whereas Finn is supposed to actually help resolve the plot, and he doesn't have a past that's commensurate with that. Now, to be fair, John Boyega is a good actor, so when he's fighting with Kylo in the climactic scene of Force Awakens, there's a certain credibility there. This guy's in over his head, but he's going to keep fighting anyway, and it's a testament to John Boyega that he makes. But a lot of the time, he just comes across as this clown who falls ass backwards into these plots. The casino scene is actually a James Bond movie within this movie. That is not given the time or the plot structure to work. But he's not James Bond in any of the James Bonds. He is Woody Allen as James Bond. And it makes it ridiculous, especially since he's been a clown in the first two acts. And then in the third act, he meets Ray, And they're supposed to meet as equals, kind of? And it's preposterous. I mean, Ray is fighting for these galactic stakes. This guy has been out in this entire movie chasing his own tail. And now, suddenly, they're supposed to be interacting as peers? That doesn't work. And one last criticism of the movie. I think the unacknowledged MVP of episode four is Peter Cushing. That movie does not work without Grand Moff Tarkin. Grand Moff Tarkin, by his very presence, explains why the Empire is as powerful as it is. He projects competence Mm -hmm. so that even more than Darth Vader, Darth Vader is just one bad guy. Grand Moff Tarkin stands in for the imperial military bureaucracy, this giant state. He's a pro where everyone else is either an amateur or a marginal criminal or a hermit. There is no Grand Moff Tarkin in the movie. The guy that they have, General, what's his name? I don't remember what his name is. Whenever he shows up, he's constantly played for laughs. He's an ineffectual clown. But in this entire movie, the New Order is constantly winning militarily. It makes no sense. There's a scene in Act 3 where they're about to attack a rebel base on the planet, and it's Ben Solo, and it's the idiot general guy. And every time you see him, what you think to yourself is, how the hell are these clowns winning? It takes all the dramatic tension out of the scene, because every time you see him, he's slipping on a banana peel. But at the same time, this guy's conquered a galaxy. He can't put his pants on without falling down. So the absence of a grand off Tarkin or any representative of a competent bureaucracy, every time you see the conflict, it destroys all its credibility.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And these things are related. The lack of depth of the heroes is tied up with the fact that the villains aren't really going to focus the danger for you and persuade you that some great achievement is necessary and at the same time that some great crisis is looming. It's incredibly superficial, and it's also strangely lopsided. The Ben Solo Luke Skywalker story is horrific, and taken aside from the Luke character, that has an incredible weight to it. What happens otherwise seems silly. That's a horror story that is understandable, and it's the sort of human thing that's incredibly frightening at the same time. Attractive, we're curious about it. What did this guy do? How did he get these powers and how did he turn evil? That has a moral weight that this other stuff is completely lacking.
1: Well, the thin stuff is mostly comedy. This takes the same place as Empire Strikes Back. There is comedy in the Han-Leia relationship in Empire Strikes Back, even in the love triangle between Han and Leia and Lando, but it's comedy that arises out of tension. Whereas in this movie, the comedy arises out of the fact that they are in a, I don't say it's a romantic comedy, they're in an absurdist comedy. These things take place in a comedic movie, rather than in a dramatic movie. And that does throw the tone off. But even the scenes where Poe Dameron is mocking the Imperial leader, what's that, I can't remember his name, because who cares what his name is? The message I get from that doesn't magnify Poe Dameron. It doesn't make Poe Dameron look like more of a hero because he's mocking these guys. It minimizes the stakes, because if the people you're beating are clowns, what have you really accomplished? If the people you're losing to are clowns, what does that say about you? Now, I do think that Ben Solo was a top political military leader. By the end of the movie, kind of works. And even Snoke, or Snokes, or whatever. There is a certain power to him at a certain point. He stands in as a representative of an older generation saying, you people are completely incompetent. You don't know what you are doing. I know what you were doing. There's a certain power to that. There was a certain generational conflict there where Ben Solo is able to say, you think I have a limited perspective. Actually, you have a limit." That's a nice little reversal. But you also need a representative of the New Order's political military bureaucracy to be minimally competent in order for these conflicts to make sense. And having Ben Solo be the only competent guy around makes the New Order just not just seem brittle, it makes everything that's happening other than the stuff that he is personally doing seem absurd.
0: Yeah, there are all these things that have to do with characterization, tone, and what characters do to focus conflicts, to embody ideas, and to give a moral stake and a certain psychological urgency and intellectual credibility that are requirements of mediocrity, not of greatness. I'm not saying that fixing this turns The Last Jedi into the best movie ever. It's not going to be The Godfather, whatever you do to it. But with mediocre competence, you have such possibilities. But there you go. All you can do is hope that the next one will be better. Well, Pete, thanks for joining me again. It's a pleasure to dissect these things with you, both the good parts and the bad parts, and to see what the state of the culture is in terms of writing, directing, ideas, consistency, and the reflection that we now have to engage in because apparently we're beset with cultural nostalgia. It's been immensely funny to see you take these things apart.
1: My pleasure. Titus, do this again soon.
0: See ya. All the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, folks, and if you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share our podcasts. You can find us on iTunes as American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast, on Twitter as Titus Film, and you can always drop a comment on social media. Until next time.